Good morning, everyone. Grace and peace to you. Today, we are continuing our series on the pillars of the church. That is, the convictions that are going to shape our congregation in the coming years. Now, last week, I introduced the first pillar, which is the gospel of the kingdom. And the message was this. Jesus died and rose again to become Lord of heaven and earth. Now, what I tried to do was demonstrate that the gospel is not first and foremost about us going to heaven when we die. Rather than a message about us, it's a message about Jesus, that he has defeated sin and death in order to reclaim the world and establish his kingdom. In other words, the gospel is fundamentally, and here's a bombshell, a political message. Jesus has been installed as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. So the gospel is not a rescue operation. That is, Jesus saving people from a sinking ship and taking them back to dry land. It's closer to an invasion a hostile takeover. In his death and resurrection, Jesus shattered the power of darkness, freed creation from its grip, and reclaimed what is his. And one day he will return to destroy death once for all, to bring all things in conformity to his will, and to make all things new. Now remember, Prior to Jesus' arrival, the prophets understood the end, that is, the kingdom, to happen in one climactic event. It was to come all at once, in other words. But after Jesus' arrival, the apostles understood, or rather came to understand, that the end comes in two events. Jesus' death and resurrection inaugurates or begins the kingdom, and his return consummates or completes the kingdom. So we occupy a strange time in redemptive history. Jesus' kingdom is already here, but it's not yet completed. The enemy is already defeated, but he is not yet crushed. Thus, the defining marker of our time is conflict. Until Jesus returns, the two kingdoms occupy the same space and time. They overlap. Now, the metaphor we use to describe our place in redemptive history is this time of year. Both seasons, winter and spring, overlap. Just last Sunday, it was a beautiful 68 degrees. I was out working in the backyard, and it felt like winter was gone for good. And then, this Friday, it snowed. It's a time when both seasons are present, when they compete for the same space and time. Now, such is our time in redemptive history. Both kingdoms make their present felt. Jesus' springtime, new creation kingdom has come, but the enemy's wintry kingdom remains. And it will be that way until 
the last day. And so the question becomes, where can we find signs of spring? Where can we look to see Jesus' reign on earth? And the answer is the church. The first shoots of new creation, that is springtime, have begun to sprout in the church and our communal and individual lives. And that brings us to our second pillar, which is the church community. How many of you here have been to New York City? Now, coming from New Mexico, it's quite the experience. New York City is a patchwork of neighborhoods, each with its own particular identity and character. There's Chelsea, Hell's Kitchen, Tribeca, Soho, and more. Now, among those neighborhoods, the most distinct are Little Italy and Chinatown. In both cases, immigrants moved to New York City and brought their culture with them, replicating it in a foreign land. That's actually really cool, uh, particularly for visitors. You can experience authentic Italian or Chinese culture food, language, customs, and manners without leaving the U.S. The neighborhoods even look like those places. In Little Italy, tables with umbrellas line the streets, and in Chinatown, they're all the trappings of Chinese culture. Now, the technical term for communities such as these is ethnic enclaves, and they're scattered throughout the United States. There is Little Mogadishu in Minneapolis. There's Greek Town in Baltimore, the Persian Square in Los Angeles, and many, many more. And each one, that is, each ethnic enclave, is an outpost. The presence of one culture within another. And visiting one of these places is like stepping into a different world, entering into a vastly different culture from our own. Now, I begin here with ethnic enclaves to say that they are the closest analogy to what the church is. The presence of one culture within another. Except the church is not ethnically based, nor does it derive from a different part of the world. Instead, the church is an enclave of the future. The presence of the coming kingdom here and now. It's an outpost, in other words, of heaven on earth. So, as a visitor might wander into an ethnic enclave, and experience what the host culture is all about. So a person who wanders into the church, its services and its community life, they wander into the church and learn about the coming kingdom, its distinct culture and ethics and habits. In other words, the church is not an enclave from Rome or Jerusalem, but heaven our true capital, and we live out the life of heaven on 
earth. Now, we are going to be all over the place this morning, but our principal text is Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. And it reads as follows, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the heart of this verse, indeed the entire letter of Philippians, is that the idea, is the idea, rather, that our true citizenship, polituma in the Greek, deriving from polis, the word for city, is in heaven. Our true citizenship is in heaven. In other words, the church is a collection of dual citizens with a social security number on earth and our names also recorded in heaven. Now, Philippi, the city in which these believers lived that Paul is writing to, serves as a metaphor for this, of what it means to have our citizenship in heaven. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. It was granted the honor of what's called the Ius Italicum, which meant that though it was not on Italian soil, it would be treated as though it was, which in turn meant that the people living in Philippi had official Roman citizenship and all the privileges that came along with it. Now, Philippi was quite, quite proud of this, and understandably so, because it was not something that happened very often. The actual city of Philippi was hailed as Rome in miniature. One commentator describes it this way. He says, It was modeled on the mother city. That's Rome. It was laid out in similar patterns. The style and architecture were uh, copied rather extensively. The Latin language was used, and its citizens wore Roman dress. So a bit like an ethnic enclave, Philippi was a colony, the reproduction of Roman culture um, and rule on foreign soil. So Philippi was a colony, the reproduction of Roman culture and rule on foreign soil. Now, what Philippi is to Rome, the church is to heaven. It is a colony of heaven on earth, the church is. And as the church, citizens of heaven, the, we and the Philippian church are to be heaven in miniature. That our customs and manners and behaviors as a people would be modeled on things above. Now, early on, in the, earlier on in this letter, the apostle told them this very thing. It says Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. He says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or remain absent, I will hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, in the Greek, these verses or rather this verse, begins with the word manas. And it could be paraphrased as just one thing. The NIV gets the meaning across well by translating it as whatever happens. 
indicating the importance of what follows. Paul charges the Philippian church that no matter what happens, they must see to this one all-important thing. And what is it? He says, to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, much is missed here in our translations. Conduct in the Greek is the word politeomai, and it means to live as a citizen or to discharge one's obligation as a citizen. So it's fundamentally a political term. So in chapter 3, verse 20, the apostle says that our citizenship, polituma, is in heaven. And in chapter 1, verse 27, he tells us to conduct polituomai ourselves on earth according to that citizenship. In other words, our heavenly citizenship has earthly consequences. Now, when we hear that our citizenship is in heaven, I think what naturally comes to mind, or what we think that naturally means, is that we're waiting on earth until we can go to heaven where we belong. But that's exactly backward. Being a colony works the other way around. As the task of a Roman citizen in Philippi was to bring Roman culture and rule to northern Greece, to another nation, so the, cult, so the church rather has the responsibility to bring the culture and rule of heaven to bear on earth. So that our citizenship in heaven is less about waiting around till we can go to another place, and it's more about taking the, uh, the ways and the rule of our homeland and bringing it to bear on earth. C.S. Lewis, um, in Mere Christianity, frames it this way. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what the world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Now, Jesus, as king, undermines and sabotages the rebellious nations of the world by sending colonizers by planting churches and advancing his rule through them. As the church, we are placed behind enemy lines, as it were, in order to stake out territory for the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' reign takes ground not through legislation or military action, not through laws legislating Christianity or the sword making people convert at the point of death, Rather, Jesus' reign takes ground by churches who are living under his rule, who are acting as colonies of heaven, carving out space on earth where Jesus' will is done. Now, it's not hard to see how this message would have been threatening. Imagine for a moment you are a Philippian. 
proud of your citizenship, loyal to the emperor and to his empire. And then comes this strange man, the Apostle Paul, announcing that there is another emperor, Jesus, who died and rose again, and another empire, the kingdom of God, telling all who hear to repent and to live according to their heavenly citizenship. That is a dangerous message. In fact, it wound Paul up in prison. In Philippi, certain men seized Paul and his companion Silas and brought them to the chief magistrate, saying, Acts 16.21, These men are throwing our city into confusion. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now, these men rightly understood that the gospel message was a threat to the Roman identity and way of life. That if we listen and obey the teaching of these men, it will mean the end of our way of life, of the way that we do things as Romans. It's not lawful for us to accept them or practice them as Romans. So in those days, being, becoming a member of the church was less about adopting new ideas and doctrines and closer to something like immigration, that is transferring citizenship, being naturalized into a new people and culture. To become a citizen of the kingdom, the old ways had to be sworn off and one must adopt the customs of their new fatherland, which is heaven. Now earlier, I used the metaphor of an ethnic enclave for the church, and it's close, but not close enough. Because an ethnic enclave, for all its cultural distinctiveness, is still under American rule. That is, Chinatown in New York City is not under the authority of Beijing and the Chinese Communist Party. It's under the authority of Washington, and it's allowed to keep its cultural heritage so long as it submits to American rule. Otherwise, it would be a massive political threat. Could you imagine the consequences if over 100,000 people in New York City alone claimed allegiance to the People's Republic of China? It would mean war, global international conflict. Yet, that is close to the nature of the church. It does not claim to be a private club or an interest group. Rather, the church claims to be a colony, an outpost of the coming kingdom, under the authority of heaven alone. It's only allegiance being allegiance to King Jesus. Now, in his work, The Christians as the Romans Saw Them, historian Robert Wilkin explains what made the early church so dynamic and threatening to the Roman Empire. 
He says this, The Christian movement was revolutionary not because it had the men and resources to mount a war against the laws of the Roman Empire. So in other words, the church essentially took over the entire Roman Empire, not because it created a standing army and went to war with Rome. That didn't happen. He says, but because it created a social group, so a culture within the culture, that promoted its own laws and its own patterns of behavior. So it created its own little group within the Roman culture, and then it began to promote its way of life the habits and customs of the church. He continues, The life and teaching of Jesus led to the formation of a new community of people called the church. Christianity had begun to look like a separate people or nation, but without its own land or traditions to legitimate its unusual customs. You can imagine why this was such a big deal and the Christians attracted so much persecution. They began to look like a nation within the nation, an empire within the empire, a people within the people. And they were not walking according to the ways of Roman rule. They were walking according to the ways of Jesus. And in the end, Jesus overcame the empire, not through military power or legislation, but by sending pioneers and frontiersmen to plant churches. That's apostles, to plant colonies of his kingdom that promote his reign and lives according to it. Thus, churches are the presence, again, of one people within another, one culture within another, one kingdom within another, and that amounts to a revolution. That amounts to a bid for takeover. Jesus is king, and he advances his kingdom through his church, peacefully, lovingly, yet nevertheless take over. So what is the church? What is our calling and commission in the world? I would say it's this, two things. It is the pulpit and the paradigm of the kingdom. The church is not a club or a gathering of like-minded individuals who come together to hear encouraging messages and instruction about life. You know, how to have good marriages, how to handle your finances, how to raise children. Like, all that stuff is good and important, but that's not the purpose of the church. Just helping people, you know, be good. Instead, the church is a colony of heaven. It's the presence of the coming kingdom here and now. And it's established behind enemy lines to subvert and to subvert rather the dominant culture and stake out territory for the fatherland. So the church is the pulpit and the paradigm of the kingdom. Now it's the pulpit because it's been given a message, the gospel. Jesus has died and risen again. Sin and death have been defeated. The kingdom has dawned. This is good news. And we must proclaim it. It's not advice or instruction, but news. Simply the facts about the way things are now. This is the world you live in. Jesus has died and risen again, and he is king. And as the nations receive the preaching of the church, 
and respond to the good news. They're to be gathered into communities, that is, churches, who are trained to live as disciples, citizens of the kingdom. Thus, the church is the paradigm of the kingdom. It's supposed to be, in the way that it lives, an example, a prototype of the new age, of the coming kingdom for the old age to see. It's supposed to be a demonstration of what new creation life looks like, at least partially, for the old world to see. So for us, the question is, so what? How does the scriptural teaching, how does this scriptural teaching translate into our experience? Well, it comes home in in two concrete ways. One, as a colony of the kingdom, the church is called out from the world. And two, the church is called out from the world for the world. Now, I want to treat both of those in turn. First, what does it mean that the church is called out from the world? Now, Peter has an answer for us. He addresses his first letter this way. 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Elect exiles. That is how Peter describes us, the church. Now, it's a double movement. Election and exile are two sides of the same coin. God's election or choice of the church to be his people is at the same time setting the church apart from all other people. In other words, because we are elect, we are also exiles. Because we have been singled out as God's special people, we are therefore separated from the other peoples of the world. So what does it mean then to be an exile? Well, it means first and foremost that we're called to be holy. That is distinct and separate from the nations in our conduct and manner of life. Leviticus chapter 18, 18 verses 2 through 4. I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. To be chosen, to hear the words, I am the Lord your God, comes with the honor and grave responsibility to reflect his character in our lives. We are not to do what is done in this or that land, in Egypt or in Canaan, or wherever we find ourselves, because no land is our home. Instead, our citizenship is in heaven, and our calling is to bear witness to our homeland. That is, to be a people among whom God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are called out from the world, separated, sort of exiled from the world in order to be witnesses to the king and his kingdom, to embody in our life together an alternative social order. 
Now, Jesus taught us this. His people are to be separate. They are to be distinct from the cultures and customs of men. The church, he said, is the salt of the earth. It's the light of the world, a city set on a hill. And it's supposed to shine, that is to live in such a way that the world takes notice. Matthew 5.16 In the world, violence is met with violence, but not so among the church. Instead, we are to turn the other cheek, to freely give up our cloak, and to go the second mile. In the world, men and women anxiously seek after sustenance and shelter, but not so among the church. Instead, we are to seek first the kingdom, knowing that we are provided for. In the world, leaders dominate and use their people. It is not this way among you, Jesus says, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. The point is this. The first responsibility of the church is to be the church. Jesus established our congregation some 40 years ago for this express purpose. To be an outpost of his reign on earth. And our great task is to conform our common life to the manners and customs of his kingdom. To take part in his great campaign of sabotage and to show forth the goodness of his reign. Now, in 1436, there was an ancient manuscript, later to be named the Epistle to Diognetus, discovered by a priest rummaging through papers in a fish shop in Constantinople. And it turns out the letter that he found dates to around 100 AD, and it's an apologetic work, defending the church against accusations circulating among the pagans. And it demonstrates, I think, what it means for the church to be called out from the world, and to live as exiles. The unknown author claims that Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom, meaning we don't have our own country where all the Christians live, nor do we have our own language where we all speak, right, or our customs, right? And, they, and he says that they do not practice an eccentric way of life. Nevertheless, he says, they do demonstrate the remarkable and admittedly unusual character of their own citizenship. So in one sense, Christians are the same as everyone else, but in another sense, they're radically different. For example, he says, they dwell in their own countries, but only as strangers. They have children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They obey the established laws, and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they respect. He sums up, their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. And this is what we are called to be or to do. That is to heed Jesus' command, it is not this way among you. The ways of the world, it is not this way among you, and to create an alternative social order. So in some, we're called out from the world, but not merely for ourselves, our own benefit and prosperity. That we'd reap the goodness of the kingdom while the world burns. No, the church is called out from the world 
for the sake of the world. Jesus has set us apart, called us to embody his reign, that his kingdom might be made visible, that the world might see its beauty and turn to him. And this is where many go wrong. They want the church to be separate for their own sakes, a bubble safe from the world, a fortress to hide out in. And as a result, the church turns inward, and whatever light it might have is smothered in self-interest and fear. Yet many make the opposite mistake. To To reach the world, they become like the world. Their light is not hidden, it's turned into darkness. And so Jesus commands not one or the other, but both. The church is called out from the world for the world, and the church is for the world when it is something different than the world. It must be light, preserving its distinctness, conform to the kingdom, and that light must be shown. Let your light shine, Jesus says. That's the first step. And the second is before men, Matthew 5.16. So let's return just for a moment to the idea of an ethnic enclave. Why do places like Little Italy in New York City or Little Havana in Miami draw so many tourists? Because they embody a unique culture, different from the one that we're used to. People do not travel across the nation to taste and hear or experience more of the same, but something new. It's the distinctness of these communities from the wider culture that gives them their mass appeal. And so it is for the church. If the church is the same as the world, same relationships, same community life, same behaviors and customs, same sort of brokenness and dysfunction out in the world, what's the point? It's salt that has lost its saltiness. It's light that illumines nothing. But what if the church existed as a witness to the kingdom? What if the church embodied a different social order? It would have tremendous draw and appeal. Not because it was relevant to the world, meaning like the world, but because it was different from the world. So our church exists to radiate the goodness of the king and his kingdom. It is the pulpit and the paradigm of the kingdom here to proclaim the risen king and to embody his rule on earth as it is in heaven. Now, I want to end briefly with a few personal exhortations. First, to truly be a colony of the coming kingdom, it requires a greater commitment to the common good. It is the local church as a whole that is the primary witness to the kingdom. Jesus died not to redeem individuals alone, but even human community itself. And our task is to witness to the kingdom in our common life, that is, our relationships, the sort of community that we create. And that requires a change in mindset. No longer, what can I get, but what can I give? How can I, as an individual, 
contribute to something larger and greater than me that witnesses to the kingdom of Jesus. And so I ask, what is your contribution to the common good? Is our church a place where you come to consume religious goods and then go your way? Or is it a place where you have taken up the charge to build a community that witnesses to the kingdom? Now, whatever the answer may be, you have an irreplaceable part to play. And second, to truly be a colony of the kingdom, it requires greater accountability and support. Holiness, which is part and parcel of what it means to be the church, called out from the world for the world, does not happen by accident. Certainly not in our personal lives, but especially as a church. It takes a people that are deeply committed to the task of embodying the kingdom. It takes a people who open their lives and hearts to one another. Where do you stand in relation to your brothers and sisters in our church? Are you aloof and isolated? Or are these people your people? Jesus is king. His kingdom will one day encompass heaven and earth. And as the church, we are called to bear witness to that kingdom, to proclaim the king, and to demonstrate for all the world to see what his kingdom looks like. That is our task.